on, I guess, yeah, a similar Temple of Doom, and then later on it just gets serious, serious, serious. Except for that last chapter in the film, which we'll talk about later, I guess. Oh, yeah. The theme song to the sequel cast is performed and written by Mark with a C. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwithac.bandcamp.com. Now we return you to the sequel cast. Firstly, I'm in charge, and when I'm not around, Dieter is. All you need to do is sign the checks, tell us we're doing a good job, and open your case of scotch when we have a good day. Second condition, my fee. You can keep it. All I want in exchange for my services is the right to hunt one of the tyrannosaurs. A male. A buck only. How and why are my business? Now, if you don't like either of those two conditions, you're on your own. So go ahead. Set up base camp right here, or in a swamp, or in the middle of a wreck's nest, for all I care. But I've been on too many safaris with rich dentists to listen to any more suicidal ideas. Okay. Okay. Uh, hello and welcome to the sequel cast. The sequel cast is a show where we talk about movies in a franchise one movie at a time. We're in the middle of looking at the Jurassic Park trilogy with the second film in the series, confusingly called The Lost World Jurassic Park. Um, I'll just call it Jurassic Park 2 to make things less confusing. Uh, it was directed by Steven Spielberg like the first film and uh, written by David Kep, uh, based on the novel of Michael Crichton. Coincidentally, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, was the only sequel novel Michael Crichton ever wrote to uh, one of his own things. And uh, this one stars, you know, not Sam Neill, as one might suspect, but Jeff Goldblum, who apparently has an African-American daughter, and uh, Julianne, stars Julianne Moore in the, the great, uh, recently departed Pete Postlethwaite uh, in there as well. And uh, John Williams returned, of course, to do the music. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Howdy, everybody. And uh, we have a very special guest, uh, a listener of the show, and uh, he's also a, a host of a podcast called Extra Sequential about comic books. Uh, Maladin, welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you very much for having me, and I feel honored to be a special guest. That's, uh, that's very nice. Thanks, guys. Oh, not a problem. You um, uh, listeners might want to check out. Uh, I was on a, an episode of Extra Sequential talking about the X-Men films. Uh, this past yes. July, I believe. That was like uh, a two-and-a-half-hour-long episode. Oh, or my goodness. Yeah, it was very long, and, and Skype kicked me off at some point, and so I rejoined. We talked a lot about the uh, different cartoon shows in that one, I think. So, yeah, uh, the Australian Wolverine, if I recall. Oh, right. From the, oh, um, and the pilot. Yeah. 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 I see Thrasher knows it. Yes. <laughs> no, I do know it. I know it very well. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting episode. We've uh, We've since cut our show down to hour-long bites, which uh, saves our, our like voices and our throats over the talking period. It's uh, It's been pretty good, yeah. But thanks for joining us, and it's nice to return the favor, finally. Oh, not a problem. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so Lost World Jurassic Park, I guess I can... I, I saw this uh, in the theaters when it came out. I saw it with my grandmother, who's a, a very religious lady, and uh, she thought it was way too violent, um, even though I think I was like 12 or 13 at the time this came out. 
Well, it would have been 14 or 15, actually. Uh, it would have been 15, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, I was bored shitless watching this in the theater for the first time. I was bored shitless watching this uh, for the sequel cast. Uh, Thrasher, when, what about you? Do you remember watching uh, this movie for the first time? Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, I saw it opening weekend, uh, uh, just like the original Jurassic Park, with, with most of my family. We all went to the movies together. Uh, I, I actually did have a good time seeing this, uh, seeing this in the theater. And, and I, I really feel that, that The Lost World is a much better theater experience than a home video experience. Uh, loved it in the theater, have never really enjoyed it on the small screen. I, I think you need to see those dinosaurs big and bold. And uh, how about you, Maladin? I was a bit of a dinosaur nut as a kid, so I remember being really excited for this film and the first one. I've always seen it with my parents. But, yeah, I, I remember sort of not sure if I liked it or not as a kid. My best memories of watching this is on crappy VHS tapes, and I'm sure that doesn't help. I agree with Thrasher. It's, uh, it's not much of a home video experience, especially on a you know 3 by 4 TV screen. But... Uh, yeah, we'll talk about our thoughts on it, I guess. But, yeah, as a kid, I, I don't even remember the first time seeing it. It's made that much of an impact on me. Right. I mean, it's a it's a sequel where they certainly try to do some things differently. I appreciate that about it. And uh, I guess we can talk a little bit about the book. I've never read the entire book, but I just read the, the sample of it on uh, my Kindle, which was like the first 50 pages or so. And... It it did have the hook of of the separate island and uh, except he goes there with his girlfriend he doesn't go there to save his girlfriend and it has a lot of uh, a business talk in the book about the uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, character who's uh, what Doctor Ian Malcolm I believe uh, talking about how he broke his non disclosure agreement by making a series of lectures about how dangerous Jurassic Park was yeah yeah I've read the book um, several times when I was young. And I remember it being uh, a lot more sciencey, and uh, like the reasons for going to the island are a lot more kind of dry. And well, let's just uh, research this island and see what the animals are doing. Whereas the film kind of changes their reasons for going there. But yeah, re- recycles um, a lot of the same kind of ideas from the first book, from what I remember. Even down to having a pair of uh, annoying kids. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean, they change it to one, don't they, in this film? Uh huh. Yeah. Right, it's just one, and. Uh... You know, with The Lost World, uh, Jurassic Park, this film, uh, like the original, it takes a long time to get off the ground, but while in the original you had a lot of uh, comedy scenes between all the different characters, in this you have a lot of very dry, very scientific uh, exposition. And um, I was uh, the DVD and the Blu-ray of this has some deleted scenes on there that I was watching, and the deleted scenes are stuff that would have gone at the beginning of the film that I think might have made the film a little bit better where you have a, a very long uh, in-gen boardroom sequence where uh, there's a character that's a bad guy that's the son of John Hammond, who's bald with the glasses. And he's saying that because of all the people killed in the first film and all the, the payments InGen had to pay to settle with their families, the board directors want some kind of return on their Jurassic Park investment. And so that's why InGen is going and roping up the dinosaurs on the island. It gives you that motivation. And there's also a deleted scene, an extended sequence with uh, Pete Postlethwaite, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, as the hunter. And he's, he gets recruited from a bar in Kenya, and in the middle of a mm. conversation, he takes a break, punches a guy in the mouth several times, and sits back down to resume his conversation. And they ask, well, why did you do that? And he said, oh, because I was bored. 
That's that's actually that is a scene I would have liked to see. That's like if that, that is Indiana Jones if Indiana Jones was a dick. Yeah, that's a good description of the character. I mean, uh, I, I would like to know. You know, the very beginning of this film with the little girl on the island being uh, shredded to bits by the dinosaur is right out of the first scene of the very first book, and uh, so that was nice to see. And I'll mention that that little girl went on to star in Dirty Dancing 3 Capoeira Nights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know they made a 3. I know they made a 2. Did Did I? Video? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I wouldn't want to be the poor chump who has to pay $20 to see that in 3D. Oh, I no. Amazing. Hmm. Matt, I think we have found our next trilogy. Dirty Dancing? <laughs> Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I hope not. Uh okay. I mean, what do you think of the, all the stuff at the beginning of the film, Thrasher? It's, it's pretty loaded with new characters and, and things. Yeah, it, it is, you do get introduced to a lot of new characters. Of course, not everybody from the first film could come back. Uh, I, the, I actually found the, the opening with the, the people on the yacht and the girl getting attacked with the dinosaurs. I thought that was a pretty effective opening. It, it immediately injects the dinosaurs with, with some real menace, and, it, and it's brutal. Because in, in a Spielberg film, you would never expect a child to be endangered, much less much less to be to be killed like that. And admittedly, you know, you don't you don't see a grisly death, but just to know that this this young this young girl was 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 eaten by a swarm of was it was it compies? Uh, yes, they just eaten by a swarm of of compies. That that is is brutal, and immediately and immediately get, puts in my mind. Oh wait! These predators aren't cool. They're they're dangerous, and from that point on, I'm very nervous about the survivability of all the other characters. If Spielberg's willing to kill a little girl, he could be willing to kill Jeff Goldblum. I wish he doesn't. Oh, go on. He doesn't kill her. I'm sure, like someone says, thank God she survived in a scene like in that sort of half-assed. Uh, let's backtrack up here a bit. Script thing, but. Yeah, you do get the impression that at least she's horrifically mutilated by these tiny chicken dinosaurs. And then the film smash cuts to Jeff Goblin yawning in front of like <laughs> And that cut for me, like I remembered like that opening scene, I'm like, okay, maybe this film isn't as bad as I remember. And then that smash cut and that awkward comedy scene kind of sets the tone for the rest of the film for me. Like this weird balance of horrific monster movie with screwy, all-ages, family-friendly franchise. Right, and it's worth mentioning, you know, the first Jurassic Park movie, uh, a lot of it takes place during the daytime. It's all bright and sunny, and it was the film that Spielberg made after making Hook um, with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. After Jurassic Mm -hmm. Park, um, he made Schindler's List, and then after Schindler's List, he took a few years off, and then he made The Lost World Jurassic Park. Where a lot of the movie, it, it's darker in tone. It's it's more violent, more bloody. A lot of the most of the scenes are at nighttime, so it's very difficult to make out what's going on in any scene. Um, so yeah, I think he goes for a different feel. I, I guess you can kind of compare it to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in that it's tries to go darker, but I don't think it tries to go funnier like Temple of Doom did either. Um, and perhaps that's a poor comparison. Anyway. Early on, there are quite a lot of really strange comedy relief scenes, which in this film, I guess, yeah, a similar Temple of Doom, and then later on it just gets serious, 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 except for that last chapter in the film, which we'll talk about later, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, 
it is nice to see Richard Attenborough again as a John Hammond, even though if he he's in like a he's in a bathrobe and sits in bed the entire time. Well, I imagine it being like uh, him on the set being like a, a, a later day. Oh, and I'm committing a grievous sin for not immediately being able to recall this man's name. Oh, crud! Shame on me. Um, the Godfather. Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. I don't know why that escaped me, but just be like in a, a later day Marlon Brando. I will do your film Spielberg, but I must do it in a bathroom, but I must do it from a bedroom. <laughs> Just, like, making that kind of condition. I mean, speaking of comic yeah. book stuff for a second, you know, Marlon Brando was uh, Superman's father. Um, was it Jor-El? In, uh, Jor- uh, Jor-El. Jor-El in, uh, in the Superman movie from the 70s. And apparently one of uh, his original demands is the character should be in a green outfit shaped like a bagel. And, and they, the director immediately yelled at Marlon Brando and said no and showed him pictures of the comic book and says, okay, we're doing this this way. And then from then on, Marlon Brando behaved. But um, Brando <laughs> bad was Brad. a... Yeah, bad Brando. He was a notorious asshole to work with, apparently. Uh, Charming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, along with these other characters you mentioned, you know, the Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, has, has a kid from one of his many marriages. Uh, and this one happens to be African-American, which comes off as a bit strange, but certainly not unheard of. Was it, is it his biological child? Or oh, they, is it like they never a, say that. I'm glad some of the characters... Uh, someone makes a crack about it in the film, don't they? That's about family resemblance. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, so at least someone recognized it. But it is a strange choice. I'm wondering what... I'm guessing it was a casting decision, like, okay, we need to have someone who's Asian. Someone who, they didn't have any Asians in this film, but they had lots of Hispanics and so forth. Maybe it was a calculated merchandising franchise decision. I don't know. Maybe I'm being cynical. I don't. Well, I mean, it's not entirely wrong to be cynical, especially when you know when Hollywood is concerned. Although it's also entirely possible that she may have been she may have been the best child actress for the job. They needed someone who could act, who could be cute, and who could do gymnastics, and she may have been the only complete package. Well, it could have been. You know, around this time, Spielberg um, had adopted a few kids, including a few kids from Africa. Um, so he has a few African uh, American children himself. So maybe that was an influence. Uh, I apologize for my voice here. I'm recovering from a cold. but um, and, and so that you have um, Ian Malcolm as the lead character in this film is really very strange. He was kind of a second banana guy in the first film, and he was knocked unconscious for a big part of it. Mm. And he doesn't... I, I don't know if I call Sam Neill as uh, Alan Grant macho either, but he certainly had more to him than the nervous uh, stuttering of Jeff Goldblum. Well, I I can't, I'm sorry, yeah, go on, Thresher. Oh, no, no, you're the guest. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I kind of like the idea of changing the focus to a, a minor character. Uh, I guess it's a different, like, to make the sequel feel not too much like the first film or the first book. But did you guys feel that he was kind of a different character in this one? Like, once he shifted to being the lead, he did act slightly differently to how he did in the first film. Did, did that come down to yeah, was that I, I think so. He, he's not as sleazy as in the first film. Yeah. And he's more his character in Independence Day in this somehow. Just yes, more kind of- yeah. He's a bit more mm. cynical. You know, he has facial hair, so that means he's in a darker mood. But if you see <laughs> that in a film, uh, and he wears all black, he's going for the. And he wore black in the first one too, I guess, but he doesn't have those big sunglasses. Again, uh, I think it's interesting that it takes place on a different island. 
And um, in this film, they mentioned, you know, the, these five islands uh, are called the Isles of the Dead. And I sort of thought maybe they would go to the different islands and the different sequels, and they never really did. Mm. But, um, For um, Michael Crichton fans, they re- he returns to one of the other islands in Pirate Latitudes, the one that was published after his death. Oh, all right. I don't know if his intention was just to reuse these in other stories, but um, they all have, like, ironic names like Island Slaughter. Uh-huh. Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even, like, there's a scene where they show the map of all the islands and they do something akin to the Indiana Jones uh, yes. location thing where they're zooming <laughs> on the map. Uh, there's lots of little movie references in this film, and I'm sure we'll touch on those, but Spielberg just kind of... I felt like he threw in every little crazy idea he had without any... Uh, thought of whether it would pull us out of the film, but maybe that's because we're film nerds and we'd spot a lot of the references. Well, you know what I think it is? I think in... Because in, orig- in the original Jurassic Park, uh, Spielberg was, was, you know, making... You know, he was, he was trying to make another thrilling adventure blockbuster movie, which at the same time is going to introduce all these new special effects practices. But with The Lost World, you know, we now... You know, it's no longer a challenge to bring these dinosaurs to life. I think the Lost World is just Spielberg having fun. I think he is kind of goofing off, and it does make for a much looser movie. But I think when I saw this on the big screen, that's what I was responding to. I kind of liked seeing Spielberg just have fun with it. Yeah, it is certainly not as tightly uh, structured as the first film, with setting up all these characters with things that pay off later. Um, in addition, you know, it's worth mentioning, uh, this was the only other sequel Spielberg has done as opposed to the Indiana Jones movies. And I think he really wanted to do this sequel because uh, he was disappointed with uh, the many sequels to Jaws that were made in the 70s and 80s and how poorly those turned out. And so he thought, well, if I can direct this sequel, I can at least make sure it turns out to be good. And whether he succeeded or not is a separate point entirely. Uh, but... Um, well, yep. Yeah, what Thrasher mentioned with the first film having, uh, so I, I forget, actually it might have been Matt who mentioned like the first film had a kind of interest in the special effects and so forth, and that was like a, a major theme in the film, I thought. You know, you've got the Luddite Sam, who, Sam Neill who hates computers, and who saves the day at the end? It's the computer whiz kids. And I sort of thought, okay, this is, they're all kind of fascinated, even Spielberg was fascinated with what computers could do. And this film, yeah, kind of lost that passion. It was just kind of having fun, as you mentioned, which is cool in one way, but depressing in another. And the way John Hammond gets Ian Malcolm to come in Jurassic Park is sort of by setting him up into a trap, as it were. He says, you know, your girlfriend, or presumably one of his many girlfriends, as... Ian, you know, in the first film, he described having several wives and kids and all that. So, so your girlfriend's on this island. She volunteered. She's been there for weeks. So that makes me wonder what Ian Malcolm's been doing this whole time, where he hasn't noticed. Drinking to forget. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking to forget, as they said in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. But, uh... I have a theory about Hammond in this film, because he is kind of the evil mastermind. Behind bit, everything. Yeah. Well, go on. Because... I feel like he's he's created this scenario to cause a major international incident so he'd be able to take control of the InGen board back from his uh, his nephew or his son, whoever it was. Because yeah. so he knew that a few small crews would not survive uh, Dinosaur Murder Park, and he gave that Nick guy <laughs> direct instructions to sabotage the other crew, right? Yeah. So I thought, okay, if a bunch of American citizens die on this island, it'll force the Costa Rican government to take con- like, to give control to the U.S., 
he, I, I think he made this whole scenario knowing that, okay, lots of innocent people will die, and then Happy Grandpa gets to run uh, an uh, ecological preserve at the end of the film and not go to prison for the deaths of <laughs> dozens of innocent people. Yeah, you know, when, when I see this whole sort of mission briefing sequence at the beginning, it reminds me of uh, the second Rambo film, uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2, in which the mission is just to take photographs, don't do anything else. Um, and, you know, of course, that's not what happens, but they're trying to get across also that John Hammond is trying to be more of a, a naturalist and less, more of a conservationist and less of a having a commercial bent. But I think you're you're right, Maladin, in that he does want to make a profit. He does want to earn some money, impress his uh, shareholders at the end of the day. And uh, so he's not the, the best man around. I mean, so when they land on this, uh, I believe it's called Isla Sorna, this uh, southern island, you are introduced to a host of characters in a scene where they're on jeeps chasing dinosaurs and you can't really make out any of the dialogue that they're saying. Uh, you know, you, you run into uh, the girlfriend, uh, played by Julianne Moore, and this was an early film that she was in, and she is sort of a hippie chick that likes to... She's kind of like Spock, I guess. She has all the scientific dialogue. And um, what do you think of Julianne Moore compared to uh, Laura Dern in the first film? You know, when I saw this, I thought it was the same actress and the same character. Uh, it, it's so it's so much of an echo of the character from Jurassic Park that... When, when I was young, I just conflated the two. It wasn't until I came back to the movie that I realized it was two different actresses with two different characters. You know, Thrasher, I think it's because you were a teenager at the time, and uh, for women, you're just looking at their breast, and sometimes if you tilt your head up a bit, you get to see their face and notice that they don't all look the same. You see, that that's where you're wrong, because cause <laughs> all breasts are unique and beautiful. Even on one woman, each breast is unique and something to be cherished. <laughs> I like this podcast. This is great. Okay. Uh, do you enjoy? Thank you. Uh, do you enjoy Julianne Moore in this film? Who me? Yes. Oh. Well, I don't know who you're talking. About. I can't see you. Oh, no, no, like, that's true. Like she, I feel like she's trying to add things into a pretty thin role. Like yeah. the scene that, where the Rexes are attacking them, and on her face, she's got this kind of mix of being terrified but also really delighted. They're like, <laughs> oh, look at the beautiful like carnivores in their natural pre- habitat while they're you know, seconds away from chopping her head off. So I like that kind of thing she put in there, but that, I feel, probably wasn't in the script. That might be um, Julianne Moore trying to add something to a pretty uh, transparent, <laughs> I don't know, female... She's barely a lead. She just kind of runs around, just like the rest of them. Very few uh, fleshed-out characters in this film. Then again, Jurassic Park, the first one, didn't have too many uh, fleshed-out characters. This one had more victims. Uh, yeah. Pr- like in a horror movie, uh-huh. just enough that you understand, okay, this is the nerdy guy, this is the incompetent um, helper of uh, Peter Postlethwaite, uh, played by... Who was who he played? Because he's so familiar and I can't place him well, now. Well, the actor's name is uh, Pete Postlethwaite, but uh, the character he plays is Roland Tembo. But Roland um, Tembo. The actor's been in things... Most recently he was in uh, that Clash of the Titans movie, and he, he died pretty recently. He was also an Amistad... Um, God, he's he's was in the Usual Suspects, I think. Yeah, oh, he's uh, really good. in perform live on on stage. He was doing this uh, one man monologue for three hours. It was pretty pretty incredible. 
Uh, so I, when I go in to see a movie with him in it, I expect <laughs> a lot, whereas he doesn't get a lot to do in this film uh, besides wear a, a nifty hat. Yeah, and it's interesting that they have characters that want to sort of hunt down the dinosaurs and kind of get a bit more action into the picture. That's, But you have that combined with the sort of conservationist photographer plot of uh, Julianne Moore and uh, her assistant is played by Vince Vaughn, uh, who is noticeably thin in this film. <laughs> that was one of the things that really jumped out at me early on in the film when you when you see the people who are hunting down the dinosaurs and capturing them. One of them is Jack Horner, who I I can only assume was playing himself, the the, paleo, the noted paleontologist. I don't think he was played by the paleontologist, but he looks a lot like the real life paleontologist with the the big the big beard and everything. Um, I'm going to look this up. I think okay. that's him, but but don't let me derail the podcast. Uh, definitely think, continue. There should be money on this, you guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> put, uh, uh, put quotations on the line here. This is good. Uh, yeah, I, I think I might be with Matt on this one. I, I remember reading that it's, it might not be him. Since when do they let real people star as themselves in things? It's like that Seinfeld <laughs> episode where Mike, uh, uh, Kramer wants to play himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like, there's so many characters in this one, and they're almost not, they're like one-line characters in that, okay, he's a bit of a Greenpeace guy, and he's handsome, so that's all we need to know about Nick Van Owen. Right. They just, yeah. It's more interesting talking about the dinosaurs. What do you guys think about the dinosaurs, huh? Uh, you know, there's a lot more dinosaurs in this film than in the first one, and the first real shot you get of the dinosaurs, uh, opposed from the little compy in the beginning is the stegosauruses, I think, are charging um, through the path as they're looking for uh, Sarah Harding. And it's like they're trying to outdo the scene in the first one where they get out of the helicopter and they see the brontosaurus in broad daylight. And they can never match up to that scene. And it's interesting that they try. Well, they can never match up to the beauty and awe and surprise of that scene because, you know, once again... Jurassic Park proved that we could now get photorealistic dinosaurs on film, but now that we've done that, we can't be impressed by that anymore. So, as a result, with, with Lost World, we, we see a lot more dinosaurs running around, a lot more dinosaurs in direct lighting. We, we just get a, a lot more dinosaurs. And less attempts to make the dinosaurs beautiful and awe-inspiring, but... But definitely more attempts to make them to make them seem real, to seem like something that's that's in this environment and that people are going to interact with. I mean, less of this one was filmed in Hawaii. I, I think some of this was, but a, a lot of this was filmed in the uh, redwood forest in um, Northern California, which is where they filmed, you know, the Ewok planet of the Endor from Return of the Jedi and mm. things like that. So it's not you don't get as many beautiful vistas in this as in the first film. And since a lot of it's at dark or in the shadows anyway, you don't get as good of a look at the dinosaurs. But, you know, certainly more of them are computer graphics than in the first film. And um, I think the computer graphic works still holds up fine. Uh, I don't think any of it looks too fake. But the the storyline in this just gets so muddled. You don't quite know who are we supposed to follow. You're supposed to root for the photographers or the hunters because the photographers steal a baby Tyrannosaurus Rex and put oh, it my. in their put it in their RV when it was right, like you do. when it was rightfully when it was knocked unconscious by the hunters because that was their job uh, you know by the InGen Corporation so there's there's thieves basically and uh, knowing what they know about dinosaurs 
that you just would leave it crying for like two hours in a van and think nothing's going to happen um, is a bit dumb. They 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 work Jeff Goldblum in kind of as the audience's voice in those scenes because at those scenes like no no what have you done oh you know what happened screaming uh, yeah <laughs> yeah our exasperation of that was the stupidest thing you could have done it's like uh, splitting up in the you know in the haunted house you shouldn't you should never do that you should always stick together just like you shouldn't bring the baby T Rex into your van but uh, yeah they hold off showing the the adult T Rexes like until. I think about an hour into the film for that major set piece that follows on from that, which I thought was kind of clever because everyone's come to see the T-Rexes, I guess, in this film. Did you guys like that central... Uh, it is kind of the set piece of the film, and that's what the baby Rex leads up to. Yeah, I think it's by far one of the best scenes in the picture. It goes on for a bit too long, perhaps, but um, you have the, the van dangling over the side of a cliff and people smashing up against the glass and you don't know are they going to fall in the freezing cold ocean. Is the dinosaur going to get him? You have a lot of cool shots. Uh, I'm thinking of one that was on posters and, and magazines a lot. Of You just see the giant T-Rex mouth and the teeth. Mm. And on the other end of the RV, you just see Julianne Moore looking frightened or screaming or something. Well, I, I, I love that set piece. And, and that's a perfect example of sort of, 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 of doing what sequels do, which is give, give you the, uh, the movie you already like, but bigger and hopefully better. Because that that whole scene is just it's 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 an echo of the scene in Jurassic Park where the uh, where the tour van is dangling off off that cliff and is tangled in the tree. Well, now we get a whole RV uh, like just a mobile home dangling with, with with that big enclosure. And I, I love that when the when the when the the woman is on the glass and you can see the glass slowly cracking and spider webbing. That just builds so much tension. I love it. That is kind of an amazing sequence of all the turn in fortune and then the rectors come back and then Eddie comes to save the day or does he uh, and then <laughs> even in this scene they throw in awkward little comic relief moments which there's one where they order like a McDonald's Happy Meal or something and I, when I was watching that I was like, oh great you've just pulled me out of the film now I'm thinking of uh, how this is going to work for a commercial to sell uh, Jurassic Park toys at you know in a Happy Meal box but um yeah, that, that spiderweb scene, that's, uh, I think they used that the most in the trailers and so forth. And that scene was the closest to what I remember in the book out of anything in the film. It plays pretty fast and loose with the, the plot of the book compared to the first Jurassic Park film, which is pretty much a direct translation. Yeah, and um, it's... You right there, Matt? You right? Yeah, sorry, I'm having a little bit of a cold here. Um, Done. So, uh, in this film, weirdly, after this scene, you know, the RV, all this expensive, like $5 million worth of equipment, I think they say, is destroyed. Very toyetic equipment, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. The van, the satellite, the... Uh, those extendable those... chairs with, like, lassos on them. Oh, yeah. All of those. You, uh, it, it, it is very toyetic. I never thought of it that way, but yeah. So, when you get all that... You, they have to team up with the the so-called bad guys, the hunters, basically just to get to the helicopter landing pad. Is that why they have to team up? I think at this point they've already screwed up their hunters' base camp. They set all yes, the dinosaurs, right. so they're just like, okay, our mission's screwed. Let's just cut our losses and and go home. Is that, is that what was happening? 
I think so. It's a, it's a bit unclear to me, but because um, these guys hate each other so much. Well, they shouldn't have sabotaged their base camp. Just saying. No, that's true. <laughs> and did you notice in the scene directly following on from uh, Eddie Carr's horrific death, which is all on screen and probably a bit too graphic for my <laughs> for my taste, maybe? Um, the, the, he dies saving their lives, a death for which Sarah and Nick are pretty directly responsible. And they don't seem to notice, except for maybe one line where Jeff Goldblum is uh, saying something back to um, Roland Tembo. But they seem angrier that the hunters are there kidnapping the poor baby murder monsters than they are that this poor innocent guy just got killed. And he's a likable guy. He was taking care of the kid in the in the hide thing. And they play it for laughs in a way. I don't know. Well, they do, and you sort of have a similar... But there's the one scene where the guy gets killed and you see the blood in the river... And then later on, a guy gets killed, and the blood goes down a waterfall. And uh, yeah, there's a kind. Of, I mean, and you talk about people getting killed for comic relief. Uh, you know, the sort of uh, second in command to Roland Tembo, uh, Dieter Stark, played by Peter Stormare, who is, has a very strange-looking face. He was in Fargo and all these other movies, but uh, he usually plays bad guys as he does in this film. He goes out to take a pee, and because a Mexican is listening to uh, Spanish music really loud in his Walkman. He doesn't hear that Peter Stormare is fighting for his life against a zillion compies. Um, mm. But that's a very fun scene, I think. They're sort of all getting around him, and they're all cute. And there's a bit of back and forth between them. But it, like you said, uh, Maladin, it's a character you never really get to know. You don't care really that he gets killed, and that it's it's played for life. I mean, hell, if Jeff Goldblum would have taken a pee, do you think he would have been killed by dinosaurs? That would have been a surprise. <laughs> that would have been the ultimate twist, to kill to kill the biggest star in your movie. Yeah, that, that sequence was just one of those ones. The minute someone goes away from the camp, you know they're going to die. And there's a following on soon after that where half the team begins to split up. Um, some run through the, the lie grass. I yeah. forget, one of the is screaming it out. And you know, okay, they're all expendable. There's no Jeff Goldblum running in that group. Although when Jeff Goldblum runs through the same field of grass, he's, uh, he's fine. There's no problem. We know that such a substantial, a such a substantial camp. You'd think someone would have a latrine set up. I don't know. Sometimes when you have to go, you have to go. So you just do it anywhere, uh, Matt. Um, <laughs> on occasion, you know, there's been an alleyway or in someone's front yard, or and usually when I'm drinking or some extreme. I wouldn't say I make a habit of it, but sometimes the bathroom simply isn't available, and. Um, <laughs> Where I live in Portland, Oregon, a lot of restaurants and stores refuse to let you into the bathroom unless you purchase something, because it's such a bad homeless problem here. Uh, so, anyway. It's turn. If you notice, this is the second bathroom-related death. Yes. Any oh, you're right. Film. Sure. Yep. The lawyer. The first the theme. theme of the film. Our humans and our waste is destroying the environment. <laughs> our sponsor on SequelCast 2 and Friends today is Podcorn. Let's talk a little bit about them. Hi, this is Matt Bradley Shirky, host of the Sequel Cast 2 and Friends podcast, and I just want to tell you about a, a real fun personal experience I had using Podcorn. Podcorn, it's a unique online marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, ranging from host read ads to topical discussions and interview segments. And uh, so why would this be interesting? Well, this is a podcast, right? Sequel Cast 2, it's a podcast. And if you're listening to it, I bet you have an idea for a podcast yourself, and uh, and when you get to making one, or maybe you already have one, 
you you really need to think about getting a, getting a sponsor because podcasting is a hobby. You know, it's it's not cheap. Any any money you can get to wet the beak a little, as a Thrasher likes to say, uh, would, would help greatly. And so with Podcorn, there's no middleman. Podcasters of all size, shapes, and sizes can uh, browse and choose opportunities on the platform, set their own rates, really easy to use. You don't have to give up any rights to your podcast. And uh, Podcorn supports you there every step of the way. In fact, initially, I was unsure if uh, this podcast was like a big enough one to even be on their platform. And I got a response right away from their uh, technical support. Really nice. Really, uh, We had a good sort of conversation clearing up any confusion I had with them. And I'm sure uh, they would do the same to you. They just want to give podcasters transparency and creative freedom. And I think in, in that it's easy to use. You're not going blindly to a site, emailing them and going, oh, hey, hey, sir, hey, miss, can I go? And uh, uh, would you like to sponsor my podcast? Uh, you, you know, if you do that, no place is going to get back to you, especially if you don't have that much of an audience. But, you know, Podcorn, they take, uh, they're very open. They want to help you out. So uh, I would highly recommend them. So you can click the link in the show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities for your podcast today. Thanks. And uh, now we go back to our show. I mean, so you, you got all this. You have an extended action sequence with the Raptors bouncing around, crashing through glass windows, chase, chasing Jeff Goldblum around. And while that action's okay, I just think it's so... It, it has to be underlit on purpose, I think, but I had a really hard time making out what's going on. Yeah, there's quite a few kind of action beats of people jumping through windows and then Raptors jumping through a nearby window. At certain times, I couldn't tell who had done what or why they had split up because, yeah, it's, it's darkly lit. But I guess that's one of the most intense action scenes of the film, but it's deflated by a, um, a pretty ridiculous uh, gymnastics sequence. <laughs> which uh, kind of yeah, the gymnastics sequence. And, and they do set up in the beginning of the film that Jeff Goldblum's daughter, Kelly Curtis, you know, had, uh, had a gold medal in gymnastics at her school. Mm. But that she does a little flip around move and kicks a raptor in the face. She should she a U, doesn't she? Like a uh, like an action movie star. Yeah, because uh, it's easy for her. This isn't a challenge, so she thought I should even the odds slightly by giving the Velociraptor a chance, call attention to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but like that scene, I thought, okay, that's the the way it's done is ridiculous. But uh, as a like a narrative idea, that's actually kind of cool. If the girl had to. You know, killed the monster to save her dad. Yeah, but, but yeah, it just looks like she's showing off. If she had instead kind of like terrified, ran out and kicked it off, that scene might have been pretty spectacular in a way, like a big character uh-huh. a moment. But uh, instead, it's I guess the silly trailer scene. I don't think they would have shown that during the trailer, actually. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't believe it was. Uh, wisely so, probably. Yeah, that's the scene a lot of people remember from this film for some reason. People have spoken. You know I think what part of it is is because it's 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 a kid it's a kid displaying a, a very amazing talent, but because we don't see because we don't see the kid at any point before that the kid really practicing gymnastics or anything it all it seems like the talent comes out of nowhere it seems like it's an unearned talent and there, there's and I when, the moment you make a kid on screen precocious is the moment everyone stops liking that kid's presence on screen. And they don't give her any real precocious lines, but they do give her this amazing gymnastics ability. She becomes physically precocious. 
And then I think that causes the audience to lose a little bit of sympathy. Well, not just that. It reminds you of the lovely scene in the first film. The kids were very, uh, you know, very vulnerable. There's a scene of the, the brother and sister in the kitchen being chased by the raptors. They're in an enclosed space. They have to use kind of their wits, using frying pans and stuff to barely get away from the dinosaurs in time. But this, that she's kind of like Superwoman and does a flip kick to, of a dinosaur to the face and nothing happens. It just I guess sort it's of cheapens the character. I don't know. Not that she had much to do to begin with except get pissy at her dad. I guess it's mirroring that scene in the first film where Lex used her hacking skills to save the day. Whereas this... Uh, Malcolm's daughter isn't good at hacking, so they had to find something else. But the hacking I could kind of buy, because computers were new, and she just liked computers. And it wasn't hacking, it was just using a a visual browser or something. (laughs) But yeah, in this, they try and sell that she's like a physical match for these deadly predators who the kids barely got away with their lives from in the first one. I feel if if he'd done that kitchen scene in this film, there would have been more scenes of the kids, yeah, hitting the raptors on the heads with frying pans with funny, like, zooming on the raptors, their eyes crossing, and stupid <laughs> shit. Little, like, little swanny whistle, woo, 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 and then the raptor falls down. <laughs> I think some Benny Hill music would have livened up the mood a bit, but, uh... You know, we ought to do it. We ought to take the raptor chase sequence, speed it up a little bit, uh, uh, we speed yeah. it up a half step, and then set it to yakety sax. You know, there's a clip on YouTube where someone did that to the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, which is very funny. Um, Actually, there's an even better one. The the Gungan uh, battle scene from Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Oh, there's no. that whole scene synced up to Yak and the Sacks, and it works surprisingly well. A scene which is the Yak and Sacks is the the T Rex in is it Los Angeles, San Diego? Uh, I'm it's not San Diego. Sure. Yeah, and, uh, and that's oh that that played like something. Have you guys seen Honey I Blew Up the Kid? Yes. The sequel- yes. 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 That whole sequence plays like scenes from that with the police cars driving up and then speeding away in fast motion out of terror. T-Rex walking in front of signs. Like, he almost sort of shrugs. It's, it's played for laughs in the strangest way. And it's like Spielberg waited till the end of the film to go full bore silly. Like. Well, and, and there's a reason for that. I, um, I got the, the Blu-ray set of the Jurassic Park trilogy on a, on a sale over the uh, holidays. And they did a new documentary on there, and they mentioned that originally the film was supposed to end with InGen gets the baby T-Rex, and uh, the rest of the humans, uh, you know, Ian Malcolm, the good guys, escape on a helicopter by themselves. The helicopter gets attacked by pterodactyls in a lightning storm, and the helicopter somehow gets away okay, and uh, that would have been the ending. And, well, you know why it gets away okay? It's a helicopter. It's faster and more maneuverable than pterodactyls. Well, they have the whole storyboard. Yeah, and they have the whole storyboard sequence. That seemed like well, that would have been kind of interesting. I don't think the special effects would have been able to pull that off at the time. But they decided instead. Spielberg's like, "Well, I love Godzilla. Why don't we make like a little Godzilla movie at the end?" So it was something that was being written on set, decided at the very last minute. This very laborious thirty-minute sequence of a T-Rex oh running around uh, San Diego, California. I mean, yeah, that whole last sequence, yeah, you mentioned the Godzilla reference. I mean, them arriving on the boat, like, I think from, uh, you guys have probably seen Nosferatu or yeah. Red Drac. The boat arrives, it's like everyone's dead, and there's something in the hold. It's, it's shot even in a similar way. And there's so many humor bits, like the kid with the dinosaur in his backyard, 
and the dog being eaten played for laughs and then a man being eaten played for laughs. People laughed yeah. when that guy gets horrifically killed and he makes gurgling noises. I felt <laughs> strange watching that. Do you guys well, remember? You know, I, that's another yeah. bit of, like, intensity because, like, I would never in a million years imagine... Because, like, you know, we, we talked about when we did uh, Raider of the Lost Ark, that, that monkey dying when it eats the poison figs. And... And but then to see but but then in, in this other Spielberg movie to see a dog killed uh, eaten by a Tyrannosaurus there's there's like when when I saw that in the theaters the audience kind of collectively gasped when they realized the dog had died and it is like they do try to play it for laughs when like like the dog's chain and the doghouse is like hanging out of the T Rex's mouth but I really think that's inappropriate because everyone I know who saw that was really kind of horrified by that scene. But I think I think rightly so. If you're going to have a T-Rex, you might as well at least be terrified by it. I mean, they could have had the T-Rex burp afterwards or something. That would have been oh. even worse. But hey, there's another weird example of humor where for some reason you're watching stuff happen through the inside of a blockbuster video. And there's all these fake movie posters. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger starring in King Lear. You have You have Tom Hanks as, like, Tsunami Man, and uh, Robin Williams in Jack and the Bean Stocks. Um, it's all these weird, like, photoshops of Conan the Barbarian posters and so forth. Maybe Spielberg thought this last sequence would just be too boring, so he had to throw in comic relief. Yeah, I don't I, know. It's, uh, yeah. But you think the idea of you would play the T-Rex in a major city as this, <laughs> this terrifying thing, or instead it's just this silly... Like almost like a comedy skit right at the end, like this black humor bit, and maybe just because it's so outlandish, I don't know. Well, I think I think what it is 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 it by that by that point in the movie, I think Spielberg is having so much fun and is getting so loose that he gets a little bit punch drunk. And when when you get in that that headspace, it, it really becomes anything goes. And it's a it's a great creative place to be in if you're trying to to if you're you know if you're if you're writing a bunch of stuff that you will later be able to edit down into the best bits. But when you're filming as you're making the stuff up, I think too 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 much of the of the chaff gets in there. I don't know, it just seems like a concept so big, um, dinosaurs in the city, that could have been its own film. Um, you know, because it's away from the island and all that. And instead, you got more uh, business going on with the. They use the baby Tyrannosaurus Rex's bait to trap the big Tyrannosaurus. And uh, the stuff where, uh, what, Julianne Moore wants to shoot it with a tranquilizer, but they want to shoot the. InGen wants to shoot it with a real gun and kill it so they can keep the baby. I mean, it's the same shit already happened earlier in the movie. It does recall a lot of the scenes from earlier on. Like, they just. Yeah, it's not the final act in a film, but it got far too long. Uh, a few callbacks would have been fine, but yeah, it's a th- it's, did you mention it's a 30-minute sequence? Yeah. It feels, it feels quite long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what I realized? I can't believe we haven't, uh, we haven't mentioned this yet, because you know, you talk about it being a tribute to Godzilla, and I actually do think a lot of the, the T-Rex attacks the city scenes are a loving tribute to Godzilla, and, and in a lot of ways, I would rather have <coughs> that half hour of T-Rex mayhem than the entire Roland Emmerich Godzilla film. But there's to just to, to drive that nail in the head. There's even that bit where like there's that 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 group of Japanese businessmen that see that see the T-Rex and panic. God, yeah. Uh, 
Because like, like, the, the audience is thinking it, but then when you show it, it looks a little bit hackneyed. I, I think it, I think it would have been fun. It probably would have been funnier if instead of being Japanese businessmen, it was like Godzilla fans or something like that. Yeah, there's probably another way to wring out more uh, silly humor out of that scene. But yeah, I remember that scene even as a kid. And that's kind of... Um, some of the other jokes are more subtle in the film, like references to other films. That one was one, even as a kid, I remember getting. And that got a big laugh in the audience, even though it's just a visual gag, which is nice. The rest are all verbal jokes. There's a reference to the 1960s Lost World movie in here as well, when they oh, first yeah. hit the source. They, uh, they mention, oh, what do you expect? Iguanas giant iguanas or something that's the special effects they used in the 60s so uh, those kind of knowing winks I like uh, if there's not too many of them which can be a problem well, the ending of this film is so sloppy too it's uh, <clears throat> the nephew of John Hammond or whatever gets kind of stuck in there with the two T-Rexes again you know sort of played for laughs reminded me a bit of the lawyer getting chomped on in the first film and then you have this like lovey dovey video with John Hammond on CNN <clears throat> that just feels really out of place. And it's like, well, as long as we leave the dinosaurs alone and the island, nothing's bad is going to happen, right? But that's how the film started. Those people landed on the island and it was dangerous. <laughs> and the little girl got nearly killed. So yeah, John Hammond's wrong. Because there's no sign that says private property warning dinosaurs. Murder Island. Yeah, don't. But, yeah. It's called islands so maybe like, people should pay attention <laughs> like who knows how many other people went to that went to that island to have a barbecue on the beach other tourists local fishermen uh who knows how many people were, were eaten by the copies how many deaths is he responsible for? <laughs> and, you know yeah. spielberg is infamous for having really happy tacked on endings and this one's no exception and i would have appreciated some sort of a debriefing scene where john hammond gets to talk with Ian Malcolm, and maybe comes to some kind of a conclusion. Where, you know, maybe these dinosaurs' ideas really fucked up. Let's uh, send a nuclear bomb on the island. Let's destroy that. It's some of Costa Rica while we're at it. Uh, <laughs> a friendly neighbor. Yeah. I'm sure the Costa Rican government weren't too keen about them trying to launch nuclear warheads <laughs> on this. <laughs> oh, hey, I've got a bit of a, a slightly sidetracking question. When the boat shows up in California um, and everyone on the boat is dead, how did the T Rex? And, and there isn't there like a hand stuck to the stuck to the to the helm? Like there's like yeah. a hand still gripping the the, the helm. Yeah, it's those yeah. big question marks. Yeah, yeah like uh, how how did the T Rex kill everybody when he was locked in the hold, and how did he kill one guy in the helm, leaving just his arm? Without destroying the helm, trying to get inside. Yes. So, uh, from what I understood, and correct me if I'm wrong, from what you, if you took it a different way, he got out of the hold, uh, and then they somehow lured back in, and some and someone died heroically closing the door behind him. Is does that is that what you got? It was like when uh, Ian Malcolm picks up the controller and it's in a man's bloodied hand. I assume that was an, a whole other movie that could have been filmed about T Rex on a boat. Yeah, I, I guess what I imagined in my mind was, was a guy like slamming on that button in desperation, trying to close the hatch on the T Rex, but then it was too late. Um, that, that's that's what I read in my mind, but but I don't know. You, you, your, yours may be more accurate. It may very well have been somebody uh, trying to valiantly save the, the rest of the ship. Not not that it apparently worked. <laughs> 
Well, Matt mentioned uh, this film's like put together sloppily, and I think this might be one of those scenes where they thought thought about it for about five minutes and then filmed it. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think the T Rex would have killed the captain, put on the sailor's hat, and piloted the the boat himself, and then crawled and then crawled back into his uh, cage as to as a trap. <laughs> It's a trap. Um, <laughs> the T-Rexes are surprisingly smart. They were the sailors of the uh, of the Cretaceous period. Jeez. Oh, uh, well, with that in mind, um, before we close out our discussion of this uh, film, let's talk about the uh, comic books a bit. So, uh, Maladin, did they do comics based directly on the movies, or were the comics just spin-offs? Well, they were... Two companies have done comics. Uh, Tops, who used to do a whole bunch of playing cards back in the early '90s, you guys might remember. They that did. Is. Yep, there you go. They did a comic series after the first film. Uh, a lot of those were just uh, tie-ins to the film itself, so just kind of adaptations of. But a company called IDW yeah, uh, is okay. currently publishing Jurassic Park comics, and they're a mixed bag. Um, for me, I, I, no, I noticed all of a sudden the last year they've been releasing a lot, which feels like possibly an advanced marketing strategy for a new movie to be released. You never know. Right. But um, the, with IDW Comics, the story is usually fine, but the art can be very amateur with really cheap digital coloring, and no one checked whether anyone could draw dinosaurs. Uh, so there's a lot of badly drawn dinosaurs in these comics. But uh, there's a series called Redemption, which I just read. And that follows Lex, and uh, Lex has formed a company called Lex Crops International from her inheritance money from, uh, from Hammond. And they're the world's leading supplier of uh, organic vegetable products, did you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> they're tr- she's speaking at the UN trying to keep the island secure. Meanwhile, Henry Wu, I don't know if you remember the uh, DNA- DNAologist, I don't know, from the first film, uh, they're breeding dinosaurs again, and it's being funded by Tim. What? With, that was my reaction. Who he's like a zoologist types, and he's he's only doing it on the condition that it's just the friendly dinosaurs, the happy dinosaurs, huh. or whatever. Do they uh, ever find friendly dinosaurs? Though I recall everything, with the exception of the uh, brachiosaurs, everything did try to kill somebody. <laughs> the brachiosaurs probably were trying to eat Tim and Lex on that tree. So let's give them some credit. Yeah, they just have poor eyesight or whatever. But there is a, a hidden mastermind behind the whole thing who's been breeding velociraptors. Guess who it is? Uh, Ned, Dennis Nedry's brother. Now, that would be... <laughs> uh, you know uh, Hammond's nephew, evil nephew? Yes. He survived that attack. Oh, did he? So, yes. That's so he's in a, all scarred up. And there's an amazing scene... Um, where some terribly drawn dinosaurs are attacking him at the end of this, and he screams, No, not again! Oh, jeez. Oh. Uh, yeah, th- they're, they're a mixed bag, these comics. Tim learns the error of his ways, I guess, after more innocent people die. Dangerous games. Um, I listened to your show last week, and I think Thrasher was saying his theory to, uh, for a Jurassic Park sequel involving South American drug uh, dealers and so forth. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, South American drug dealers and, like, commandos and revolutionaries. There you go. Uh, the, the, the miniseries Dangerous Games is about an undercover agent who's infiltrating a drug kingpin who has established his base on the abandoned Jurassic Park. So, the oh. idea might just be taken. So, bad luck. <laughs> or maybe just a, an evil genius, I don't know. Did you well, hear about an idea they developed for Jurassic Park 4 that never got off the ground? 
Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if you saw me if you've heard this before. We might have talked about this in the show before. I, I don't recall, but uh, I, or maybe I think Thrasher and I just had a phone conversation about it one afternoon. I think it was over the phone. Yeah, right? it might have just been over the phone, not recorded, um, like so many of our other conversations. Uh, so anyway, the original plan for Jurassic Park Four, when Michael Crichton was still alive, was that a commando team was hired. <coughs> excuse me, by InGen to recover the shaving cream can with the DNA samples that Nedry lost in the first film. Hmm. And he recovers the can, then he's promptly knocked unconscious, he wakes up, he's in an InGen laboratory, and they have taken the DNA samples and have made sort of a, a bipedal talking dinosaur commando teams. Wow. <laughs> that somehow work with this commando guy to try and break out of InGen and uh, stop more experiments from occurring. And the dinosaurs would have talked, and they would have had names like Mr. Explosives or whatever. Um, we want to be free! Yeah, kind of thing. yeah, but, you know, that one never got off the ground. But uh, reportedly, a Jurassic Park 4 is in the works again, but they haven't said whether if it's going to be a complete reboot or what they're going to do with it. Um, reboot? I hope not. What would be... Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think... Yeah. I mean, there's still plenty of places you could take this story. But although before we get to our sequel game, if I could talk about the, as I recall the the Tops comics, after the movie came out and there was still a lot of demand for the comics, they had to continue from there. I do remember at one point, if I recall correctly, there was there was a plot line about uh, some raptor DNA getting off the island and it being militarized. And I remember there was a cover of a Jurassic Park comic. Where there is effectively like a cybernetic raptor wired into this like command center or training pod thing. That's amazing. <laughs> when will people learn? <laughs> I guess moving on from comic books to something else. Uh, Maladin, have you ever played any of the uh, Jurassic Park video games? Yes, um, yeah. I played the the Sega Genesis, Sega, Sega. I don't know, Sega. I'm sure of it. Um, the, not the first one, but the second one called Raptor Rampage Edition yes. or something. All right, uh, and that was great. You could play as the Raptor, and that's one of the the maddest video games because you just sprint across a screen, a, the screen as basically a murder machine, and nothing <laughs> is any challenge to you. You just kick and run <laughs> as you run. It's pretty amazing. I'd recommend this one because it's so it's hard, but the. Yeah. Uh, the action quotient's great. And uh, if you want to ha- play as Alan Grant with, like, a flamethrower and uh, rocket launchers and kill dinosaurs, some are herbivores, too, which you can kill, which is nice, I guess. Uh, yeah, that one was good. I haven't played the new Telltale game. I know Matt and I were talking about it before. I know that has the shaving cream can as a major plot element. Uh, so. Yes, it does. And um, from what I understand, the Telltale uh, game, it's on computer, uh, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360, Mm. Um, or PC, I should say. I'm not sure if it's on the Macintosh or not. But it's supposed to be a bit like a PlayStation 3 video game called Heavy Rain. And that's it's a bit of an adventure game. You're collecting things. But it's all about holding down the buttons at the right times. You're not really putting things in an inventory and using all these verbs, like use shaving cream with nose uh, to solve puzzles or, or whatever. That's a silly <laughs> example. But um, it's gotten pretty rotten reviews. Otherwise, I would have checked it out. If it drops in price, I'm still curious. And uh, are there any? I know Heavy Rain. Does it have like moral choices and so forth? Do you kill this man? I don't know how they'd work that into. Uh, you know, I haven't played it. I don't believe so. But there are things like a dinosaur is chasing you, and you've got to push the X button and the A button at the right time. And if you don't, you die, and you've got to restart the sequence over again. Um, 
So it sounds like it'd be a bit frustrating. Uh, sounds like an interactive movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And um, I'd, I'd still like to check it out when it drops in price. I might, I might pick it up later on. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a had a girlfriend, and she had the video game Lost World Jurassic Park on the PlayStation. And uh, you could play as a human and as all the different dinosaurs. But you didn't get to pick which ones you got to choose from. In the beginning, I think you had to play a compi, unfortunately. <laughs> and it was so difficult jumping from like platform to platform when you would die in one hit and everything that they later re-released the game as like Lost World Jurassic Park, the video game Gold Edition, where they added an easy mode because too ah. many people complained. And uh, on our Facebook page, if you go and look up SequelCast, I, I posted there's a hidden video at the end of the game where they had full motion video of Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm talking to you, kind of insulting you for two minutes, saying, oh, you, you faced a T-Rex uh, right in the face and lived to tell the tale. Very good. Why don't you go outside and uh, talk to a member of the opposite sex on, on the phone? Uh, <laughs> and it's very, wow. very funny, very tongue-in-cheek, but kind of sort of a mean thing to do, I suppose, for what's uh, apparently a very difficult video game. Yeah, there's some some video game designers I think are just sadistic. I don't know if you guys remember uh, the sci-fi cartoon Bucky O'Hare, but there was an NES game based on it, which is far more difficult, and yet difficult in a well-designed way, than any game based on a cartoon for five-year-olds has any right to be. Uh. And it doesn't end. Every time you think you get to the end, it adds five more locations to the map that you have to get through. <laughs> Sounds like you have some bad memories about this guy. <laughs> yeah, and they're from last year. Um, oh. I, I have a friend who's a big video game fan, and, and sometimes when we all go to hang out at his house, he gets out, like, we'll, we'll, like, we'll, he'll just get out a bunch of terrible NES games, and we'll just take turns playing through them. And for whatever reason, that night... Uh, his name is Jared. He and another one of the guys hanging out, Chris, just got obsessed with that game and just made that their focus and played, I think, played, played it for five hours trying to get to the end. I think before <laughs> we wrap things up, I should uh, probably plug our sponsor. Um, oh, yeah. Well, SequelCast has a website, of course, at SequelCast.com. You can also find us on iTunes. We've got a blog called SequelCast the Blog at uh, SequelCast.blogspot.com. My voice is going. Uh, we have a sponsor called Stitcher, which uh, it's an app you can download for your iPhone or Android phone or what or BlackBerry, what have you. And you can listen to a lot of podcasts, including the sequel cast, streaming uh, on the go. So you don't have to wait five minutes for a show to download. It just streams. But keep in mind that it takes up bandwidth on your phone. So um, that could potentially be expensive if you're not hooked up to a Wi-Fi thing. But with that thing uh, set aside, if you go to uh, stitcher.com slash sequelcast, that's S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R dot com slash sequelcast, and sign up on it that way, you automatically get SequelCast added as one of your favorite shows, and you have a chance to win 100 American dollars. So Listen um, to us on Stitcher! Yeah, you know, I've made nothing from any of our sponsors so far. I'm thinking of just taking them all down. But uh, well, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, oh, should we do the Steel game? We can okay. in a second. Uh, Maladin, oh, would you like to uh, explain your uh, extra sequential podcast a bit for our listeners? Sure. I mean, we don't have any sponsors. We're not as professional as you guys. Oh, but, we um, haven't made a dime off this shit. Are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> Ungrateful listeners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do a comic book and graphic novel podcast hosted out of 
Well, it wasn't. I keep, I'm so used to saying out of Perth, Western Australia, but that's no longer true. We're now an interstate Australian podcast, and we cover mainstream comics, indie comics, uh, Japanese manga, and uh, underground comics and so forth, like between my uh, co-host and I. He's more of the mainstream lad, and uh, we cover a variety of topics. We recently reviewed the Utintin movie from Spielberg again. I listened to that episode. That was very good. Oh, thank you very much. That's nice to hear. Um, and this week we're reviewing, uh, there's a new book that's come out for, uh, you probably know who um, Jack Kirby is. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. He, Jack yeah, King. They, yeah, they put out a book collecting his and Joe Simon's uh, romance comics from the 1940s. They worked huh. on a, a young romance. And uh, we both had a great time reading this, and we're going to review kind of 1940s romance comics. It's, uh, it's a wide world of different comics out there. So that's this week's show, extrasequential.com. And Facebook and all that stuff. If you're into comics, you should check us out. That's you know, my... Maladin, if you send me a, a private message on Facebook with your mailing address, I'll mail you a copy of these hideous Starship Troopers comics I have that were co-written by Warren Ellis. They're, um, they're not very good, but I thought you might get a kick out of them. <laughs> I probably will. I'll read them and then, um, I don't know, use them for... Like roof insulation or something. I think so. It's like a three-issue miniseries where Warren Ellis was credited on the first issue, and he was so horrified by the artwork and everything, he made them pull his name off it. Oh, my. Even though he turned in a script for a whole three-issue series. So they kind of had to tap dance around that. But um, You're not selling me on this comic, I've got to say. Well, I, I, I enjoy that Starship Troopers film very much, and it's uh, it tells the story of how uh, the Michael Ironside character lost his arm and got a metal, metal arm. So it's not. It's. I'm not sure why that takes three issues to tell that story, but it does in this case. And uh, the world must know. Yeah, the world must know. So to be told. <laughs> Actually, uh, I could uh, recommend something to you for this next episode. If if you're uh, if you're looking <laughs> something uh, funny, you might want to check out uh, the graphic novel Truer Than True Romance. This guy uh, took a bunch of old uh, issues of True Romance and just added his own dialogue. And it's it's really it's 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 quite hilarious. My favorite is uh, I, I forget what the original title was, but the new title is "Too Dumb for Love," <laughs> about a woman who is such an idiot that she she can't like find she cannot have relationships with people. But it actually has like a real plot because the guy that she has a crush on is a federal inspector testing water quality, and it turns out there's poison in the water, which is making everyone which is killing everybody's brains. <laughs> it is hilarious. Well, that does remind me of a comic I want to bring up uh, before we wrap up this talk on the Lost World Jurassic Park. Uh, there's a website and also a book of this called Garfield Minus Garfield. Have you heard about yeah. this, Maladin? This is great. Yeah. Uh, and I know Davis himself was a fan of it. He actually uh, wrote a few strips of it, I think, for the print book of it. But uh, have you heard of this, Thrasher? Uh, oh, yes, I have. Yeah, so they take the Garfield too. comics and they t- delete Garfield from the comic. So John looks like a pathetic, insane little man. And uh, I think the comics were improved taking out Garfield and his punchlines, personally. Um, I used yeah. to like the Garfield cartoon a lot as a kid, but... <laughs> well, the cartoon is great. The comic strip isn't. I mean, the cartoon, <laughs> I recall there was a Thanksgiving episode in which you find out, like, John's father di- or grandmother died of cancer. Like, a very oh depressing subject matter for a, a cartoon where half of it's like Garfield eats a Thanksgiving lasagna or whatever that is. Um so, Garfield, did you eat the lasagna? John, did your grandma die? I <laughs> yeah, I think the only joke from the cartoon I remember is they, uh, John goes out for a date and Garfield says, I use uh, 
John's dating adventures as a experiment to uh, tie my ten minute to tie my hard boiled eggs. So that our joke, reaction is uh, yeah, typical. That, that, that joke was presented horribly, but um, it was funnier in context. Believe you me. Okay, so let's wrap this up. Before we give our thoughts on The Lost World, Jurassic Park, also known as Jurassic Park 2, uh, let's do the sequel game in which we pretend Jurassic Park 3 never existed, and you get to pitch your own take on what Jurassic Park 3 would have been. Um, so I will... Uh, Thrasher, why don't you begin, since I don't have an idea yet. Oh, okay. Well, I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about it, and I think the way I would do, if I would do a Jurassic Park 3 is that you know, after you've had a T-Rex uh, attack, uh, attack Los Angeles, well, now the secret's out. Everybody, the whole world now knows about this, uh, about this amazing, uh, amazing island populated by dinosaurs. So the next movie takes place not too long after, but uh, that island uh, has now become this top, this top destination for big game hunters and and wealthy kooks that wanna that wanna get close to dinosaurs. And so, ironically, it's a Jurassic Park that's making a lot of money, but InGen isn't seeing any kind of take. So the conflict really gets really gets uh, really builds when InGen sends a uh, private security, a mercenary force, to secure the islands. So that they can reestablish control over them and and find a way and find a way to start making money off their dinosaur investment. So you immediately have a conflict between a group of big game hunters, a group of wealthy uh, naturalists, and the mercenary force. However, turns out the raptors are far more intelligent than anyone ever suspected. The raptors have been watching and studying everyone who's come to their island. They and they've started. They've started to to really develop. The raptors start stealing supplies from all the camps. Eventually, stealing weapons, which they start to figure out how to use. And then there's a raptor revolution, and the raptors with firearms start taking over. Start taking over the island and killing off the humans. And so, uh, the everybody gets decimated until it turns into a small group of people, a couple of the naturalists, a couple of the mercenaries, a couple of the big game hunters, and they have to work together to get to the only functioning boat off the island. But it just so happens that that functioning boat is also a boat that the raptors want to get to, because now that the raptors know that they can seize territory by using stolen firearms, they want to expand to the mainland. Why stop there? Then they launch a coup to overtake the <laughs> country. <laughs> the tagline could be "Death finds a way." Ooh, nice. <laughs> That's good. Yes. I think my pitch for Jurassic Park Three uh, would be along the lines of Alien versus Predator, except there's a a bunch of Air Force guys going on a training mission, and suddenly one of the airplanes there's a malfunction. The guy has to parachute out and lands on uh, the original Jurassic Park island, not the second island in the uh, from the second movie. And somehow there's dinosaurs still in there, and par- bits and pieces of the park are still intact. This guy lands with no weapons, no walkie-talkie, no cell phone, no radio, no nothing. And it would be very minimal as far as dialogue goes, very much kind of a Jack London survival-style picture. As, what can you do to try and get off the island with this you know, a theme park infrastructure that's in place, but everything's been dilapidated because it's been a decade, you know, let's say, since the original film took place. So, like, a one-man one man show? That sounds yeah, cool. yeah, like a man versus nature, and uh, I don't think they'd ever 
do that, but I, I always wish they would have done an Alien versus Predator movie where it's one man, one alien, one predator, and almost uh-huh. no and almost no dialogue. But um, your one man thing sounds like a Bear Grylls special crossover. What's you know, that? Man Wild, uh, Bear Grylls. I don't know. We get him on TV here. He's on the oh, I don't know what channel, Discovery Channel or something here. Yeah, he's a uh, he's that guy who goes around drinking his own pee. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. There's a poor description of what his show is, but... Uh, man versus Wild Guy? Yeah, yeah, like Survivalist dude. All right. Yeah, that's what I'm imagining when... Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. I think a bit of that. Uh, do you have an idea for Jurassic Park 3, pretending uh, Jurassic Park 3 did not exist? <laughs> I'd rather Jurassic Park 3 had existed and not number 2, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would continue with the idea of taking a, another character from the first film and having the film spun around then. So maybe Laura Dern. I like Laura Dern. Okay. Uh, Possibly commerce wins out, so they've started breeding dinosaurs as domestic pets. And mm. you can use your imagination for where that goes. So um, possibly Dodson. Do you remember Dodson or Dodson from the first film? I think his company should be behind, should be behind <coughs> breeding them as pets. And that gives a chance for Lex, Lex and Tim's uh, sassy uh, nephews, nephews of their own, to... Uh, go on the run with one the one friendly dinosaur who helps them take down all the evil ones. So, sort of like gremlins, oh, in a okay. way. Uh, yeah. Could be something. But, uh, that'll never happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I just thought this, of a... This, this, like, there'll be like a poster and it'll have a wrapper on it. Is this this season's hottest new toy? You bet your ass it is. Oh! oh. <laughs> Ouch. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that also reminds me of a pretty hideous... Uh, idea that popped in my head for a Jurassic Park prequel, you'd call it Nedry Begins, and it's all about the behind the scenes, it's about sort of the office meets Jurassic Park, of Dennis Nedry or I guess the IT crowd, you would say of uh, Dennis Nedry being so upset being an IT person on Jurassic Park that what convinces him to finally defect and uh, <laughs> take down the park I don't think that's a movie anybody would want to see because it have the Jurassic Park name and you see no dinosaurs in it because it's just about him eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos and making cell phone calls from his desk. You love Twinkies and Ho-Hos. Uh, well, you know, Hostess, I, I think, might be filing for bankruptcy, so I'm sure they'll be bought out by another company. But Hostess, you know why you can, I guess. Yeah, is an American company that makes Twinkies. And Do they have Twinkies and Ho-Hos in Australia? Oh, I'm, I'm a bit confused. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I suppose not. Uh, Twinkies are a snack cake. Because I could picture Twinkies through movies and, yes. like, references so in my mind i have no are they savory uh no they're 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 not not that good they're not good for you like a twinkie is lawn and yellow and full of cream and uh they've done done experiments where you leave it out outside for months at a time they don't decompose so it's a lot of uh scary preservatives in there and you only want to eat one of these a year if at all yeah you, you find them in gas stations for sale um, oh, okay, yeah, say no more. Right. <laughs> like gas station nachos. Oh, uh, yeah. I'd right. watch a whole film about Dennis Nedry. I want something for Wayne Knight to do. I want to see him again on my movie screen. He was in uh, Punisher Warzone. Really? Does does yeah. he blow up? Um, I believe so. He plays Micro or whatever, his little the Punisher's uh, kind of weapons guy. Is he in Basic Instinct 2? Uh, no, but he's in the first one. The second yeah, one yeah. is complete rubbish. Um, oh. Have you covered those on the show before? We did. Uh, funnily enough, with uh, Sabrina Miller, um, you and I were talking a bit about those shows uh, a bit earlier. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll 
I'll say the, the sexual tension never ran higher as I'm trying to make bad <laughs> sex jokes during a Basic Instinct 2 episode. <laughs> so uh, I tell you, she was the stop of the century. Uh, take that for what it's worth. Uh, so let's wrap up this sequel cast episode. And it, it is about the Lost World Jurassic Park, uh, believe it or not. Uh, with our final thoughts on the film, just sort of a, a takeaway, and what do you recommend the film or not? Uh, as for me, uh, I would not recommend The Lost World Jurassic Park. Uh, unlike most of these films I've seen for the show, this one has gotten worse with age. I, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, maybe what, go on YouTube, look, the, look up the ten-minute clip of the RV falling off the cliff. Uh, that's all you need to see of this picture, really. Uh, Thrasher. Uh, I'll say it's it's certainly not essential viewing, but uh, out of all the dinosaur movies that have come out since Jurassic Park, it is the best since Jurassic Park. Um, they're not. They're, I mean, it, it, it's like it's like this, this and Carnosaur are where you're going to go for for your n- not quite as good as Jurassic Park dinosaur movies. I think it certainly is fun. It it, it is fun if it is, but but it is nonsensical. It, as long as you go in just wanting to see dinosaur zaniness, I think you'll be very satisfied. Uh, unfortunately, if you're looking for for heart or a good story, you you will be let down. So just just go for fun. Uh, if at all possible, see it on the big screen. The dinosaurs are much better when you see them large. Uh, it, it, this movie does lose a lot on, on a television screen. Uh, as for myself, I mean, as a piece of special effects history, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting on that count. But uh, otherwise, I was so bored watching this film, I, I could not, in uh, all honesty, recommend this film to anyone. And uh, I'd say don't see it with kids. I'm really surprised this was marketed to kids. It's... Uh, at times kind of reprehensible, some of the stuff they get away with um, under the guise of family-friendly entertainment. Mm. So, uh, yeah, definite thumbs down. Don't see this from me. See Jurassic Park 3, why don't you? Yeah, uh, and we'll be talking about that next week on the sequel cast. So, uh, Maladin, thank you for taking time out to be a guest on the show. Uh, where can people find your podcast, uh, Extra Sequential, at? Oh, um, you can find a podcast at extrasequential.com and on Facebook and all the shows there and thanks for having me on the show I had a, uh, had a blast talking about uh, this terrible film yes uh, <laughs> not a problem anytime <laughs> it was good happening yeah Chris clear Skype connection am I right you guys wow oh near perfect yeah we yeah. got uh, lucky this time uh, alright well uh, thank you Maladin uh, thanks a lot guys good afternoon <laughs> <laughs>